Chapter Eight of Nothing But the Truth by Frederick Isham. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Eight: New Complications. Is your father's embarrassment serious? She asked. Bob looked startled. He didn't like the way she had shifted the conversation. Pretty bad, he answered. I believe, though, it's customary for men on the street not to stay downed, as they say. Don't know as it's an invariable rule returned Bob evasively. Then, realizing that it wouldn't do to be evasive, as a matter of fact, I don't believe I'm very well posted as to that, he added. What does your father say? she asked abruptly. Bob would much rather not have talked about that with her, but Dad says there is no hope, he had to say. Miss Gerald was silent for a moment. As a child she remembered a very gloomy period in her own father's career, when the street had him cornered. She remembered the funereal atmosphere of the big old house, the depression on nearly everyone's face, how everything had seemed permeated with impending tragedy. She remembered how her father looked at her, a great gloomy ghost of himself, with sombre burning eyes. She remembered how seared and seamed his strong and massive face had become in but a few days. But that was long ago, and he had long since left her for good. The vivid impression, however, of that gloomy period during her childhood remained with her. It had always haunted her, though her father had not been downed in the end. He had emerged from the storm stronger than ever. The girl shot a sidewise look at Bob, standing now with his arms folded like Hamlet. Perhaps he had come from such a funereal house as she, herself, so well remembered. Had Dad's trouble or tragedy weighed on him unduly? Had it made him, for the moment, just slightly irresponsible? Miss Gerald, as has been intimated, had frankly liked Bob as an outdoor companion, or an indoor one too, sometimes, for that matter. He was one of the few men, for example, she would trot with. He could trot in an eminently respectful manner, being possessed of an innate refinement or chivalry which certainly seemed good to her, after some of those other wild Terpsichorean performances of myriad masculine mannequins in the mad world of milliondom. "'I suppose your father has taken his trouble much to heart?' Miss Gerald now observed. "'Not a bit.' "'No?' in surprise. "'No.' "'Why not?' "'Said he looked to me to keep him in affluence the rest of his days.' "'To you?' "'That's right.' "'But how?' what are you going to do hustle at what don't know gotta find out what did you plan doing when at college nothing is it miss gerald got back to where she had been before the sense of awful responsibility with slight sarcasm that has turned your brain i'm not crazy no she remembered that most people in asylums say that though i may be in a matter of three weeks Bob added, more to himself than to her. Why three weeks? Well, if I don't, just shouldn't happen to go crazy during that time, I'll be all right after that. Why do you allow a specified period for your mental deterioration? I didn't allow it. Who did? Can't tell you. Miss Gerald pondered on this answer. It would seem as if Bob had hallucinations, if nothing worse. He was possessed of the idea, no doubt, that he would go crazy within three weeks. He didn't realize that the deterioration she referred to might have already begun. He looked normal enough, though, had the most normal-looking eyes. 
Could it be that he was acting? And if he was acting, why was he? That seemed incomprehensible. Anyhow, it couldn't be a sense of responsibility that had upset Bob. She became sure of that now. He played a losing game with too much dash and brilliancy. Hadn't she seen him at polo, hadn't she held her breath and thrilled when he had sailed in, and with irresistible vim snatched victory out of defeat? No, Bob wasn't a quitter. So your father looks to you to support him? So he said. The governor's a bit of a joker, though, you know. He may only be putting up a bluff to try me out. What did he advise you to do? Bob shivered. Matrimonial market. You mean? Heiress succinctly. Any particular one? Dad did mention a name. Not. She looked at him. Yes. An awful pause. Now you know why I didn't want to see you, said Bob, in that even fatalistic voice. First place, I wouldn't ask you to marry me, if you were the last girl in the world. Second place, I was afraid if I saw you, some of these things Dad said to try me would be bound to pop out. You mustn't think badly of Dad, Miss Gerald. As I've said, he didn't mean a word of it. He was only sizing me up. Don't I know that twinkle in his eye? Just wanted to see if I'm as lazy and good-for-nothing as some chaps brought up with the silver spoon. Why, he'd—honestly, Dad would just kick me, if I took his advice. Why, if I went back home tomorrow, went on Bob, warming to the subject, and told him we were engaged, the girl moved slightly and we're going to be married right off. The girl moved again. Why, why, old as I am, Dad would take off his coat and give me a good trouncing. That's the kind of a man Dad is. I see it all now. He really believed he did, and for the first time. He felt he had solved the mystery of Dad's manner and conduct. It had been a mystery, but the solution had come to him like an inspiration. Dad wanted to see whether he would arise to the occasion. He had told him he didn't believe he was worth his salt just to see his backbone stiffen. He had alluded to that other way of repairing the busted family credit, just to observe the effect on Bob. And how Dad must have chuckled inwardly at Bob's response. Why, they'd almost had a scene, he and good old Dad. Bob could smile at it now, if he could smile at anything. He certainly had been a numbskull. Dad, pulling in fish somewhere, was probably still chuckling to himself, and wondering how Bob would work out the problem. "'Dad was always just like that when I was a boy,' he confided to Miss Gerald, now standing more than ever like a marble lady in the moonlight. "'He would propose the contrariest things, always trying and testing me. Guess that's why he acted so happy when he went broke. Thought it would make a man of me. By Jove, that's it!' Why, he was as carefree as a boy with a new top. Was he indeed? said Miss Gerald, studying Mr. Robert Bennett with eyes that looked very deep now, beneath the imperious brows. How nice! Oh, that tone was distant. It might have been wafted from one who stood on an iceberg. Isn't it? Bob heaved a sigh. I'm not afraid of you any more, he said, now that I've got that off my chest. Again Miss Gerald shivered slightly but whether at the slang or not was not apparent. "'You can't frighten me any more,' said Bob. "'But why,' said Miss Gerald, "'did you tell me at all of Dad's, as you call him, charming suggestion?' "'Had to. Didn't you ask me?' in faint surprise. Then he remembered she didn't know he had to tell the truth. 
That made him look rather foolish, or imbecile, in the light of all those other proceedings. Miss Gerald's brow contracted once more. Again she might be asking herself if Master Robert was acting. Was this but gigantic, bombastic, quixotic, posing, after all? It was too extraordinary to speak of such things as he had spoken of to her. Did he only want to appear different? Did he seek to combine Apollo with Bernard Shaw in his attitude toward society? Or had he been reading Chesterton, and was he but striving to present in his own personality a futurist's effect of upside-downness? Miss Gerald felt now the way she had at the modernist's exhibition, when she had gazed and gazed at what was apparently a load of wood falling downstairs, and someone had told her to find the lady. It was about as difficult to-night to find the real Mr. Bennet, the happy-go-lucky Bob Bennet of last month or last week, as it had been to find that lady where appeared only chaotic kindling wood. Miss Gerald let the cool air fan her brow for a few moments. This young man was, at least, exhilarating. She felt a little dizzy. Meanwhile, Bob looked at her with that sad, silly smile. "'You can't ask me any questions that will disconcert me now,' he boasted. Miss Gerald looked at him squarely. "'Will you marry me?' she said. It was a coup. Her father had been capable of just such coups as that. He would hit the enemy in the most unexpected manner, in the most unexpected quarter, and thus overwhelm his foes. Miss Gerald might not mean it. She, most likely, only said it. Under the circumstances, to get at the truth herself, she was justified in saying almost anything. If he were but posing, she would prick the bubble of his pretense. If those grandiloquent, and, to her, totally unnecessary protestations didn't mean anything, she wished to know it. He would never, never marry her, would he? Or, possibly, her question was but part of a plan, or general campaign, on her part, to test his sanity? Six persons, real competence, too, had affirmed that he wasn't just right. Be that as it may, Miss Gerald dropped this bomb in Master Bob's camp, and waited the effect with mean serene. Her query worked the expected havoc all right. Bob's jaw fell. Then his eyes began to flash with a new fierce love-light. He couldn't help it. Marry her? Great Scott! She asking him if he would? He felt his pulses beating faster and the blood pumping in his veins. His arms went out, very eager, strong, primitive arms they looked, that caveman kind. Arms that seize resistless maidens and enfold them, willy-nilly. Miss Gerald really should have felt much alarmed, especially as there was so much doubt as to Bob's sanity. It's bad enough to be alone with an ordinary crazy man, but a crazy man who is in love with one? That is calculated to be a rather unusual and thrilling experience. However, though Miss Gerald may have entertained a few secret fears and possible regrets for her own somewhat mad precipitancy, she managed to maintain a fair semblance of composure. She had the courage to stand by the coup. She was like a tall lily that seems to hold itself unafraid before the breaking of the tempest. She did not even draw back, though she threw her head back slightly. And in her eyes was a challenge. Not a love challenge, though Bob could not discern that. His own gaze was too blurred. Miss Gerald suddenly drew in her breath, quickly, as one who felt she would need her courage now. Almost had Bob, in that moment of forgetfulness, drawn her into his arms, and so completely the paradoxical picture of himself, 
when the impulse was abruptly arrested. He seemed suddenly to awaken to a saner comprehension of the requirements of the moment. His arms fell to his side. "'That's a joke, of course,' he said hoarsely. "'And if it wasn't?' she challenged him. There was mockery now in her eyes, and her figure had relaxed. "'You affirm it isn't?' "'I said, if it wasn't.' "'I guess you win,' said Bob wearily. These extremes of emotion were wearing on the system. "'You mean you wouldn't, even if I had really, actually—' "'I mean you certainly do know how to even up with a chap. When he doesn't dare dream of heaven, you suddenly pretend to fling open the golden gates and invite him to enter.' "'Like St. Peter,' said the girl. "'Ah, you are laughing,' said Bob bitterly, and dropped his head. Her assurance was regal. "'As if it wasn't hard enough anyway to get you out of my darn fool head,' he murmured reproachfully. "'Then you reject me?' said the girl, moving toward the entrance. "'Good. I mean, bad. So humiliating to have been rejected. Good night, Mr. Bennet. No, it isn't necessary for you to accompany me to the house. I really couldn't think of troubling you after your unkind refusal to—' Bob groaned. "'I say, there is always your aunt, you know, who can ask me to vacate the—' he called out. "'I'll think about it,' said the lady. A faint perfume was wafted past him, and the vision vanished. Bob sank down on the cold marble seat. He remained thus for some time, oblivious to the world, when another car, en route from the village to the house, purred past him, spitting viciously, however, between purrs. Bob didn't even look around. Spit! Spit! Purr! Purr! Its two lights were like the eyes of some monster pussycat on the warpath for trouble. Spit! It seemed in a horribly vicious mood. More spits than purrs now. Then the car stopped, though it was some distance from the house. "'Curse this old rattletrap!' said a man's voice. "'Oh, I guess no one'll pay any attention to it,' spoke another occupant. "'Besides, it was the only one to be had at the station, and we had to get here quick.' "'You bet. The quicker the better,' observed a third man. They all got out, not far from where Bob sat in the dark, gazing into a void. But he did not notice. Cars might come, and cars might go, for all of him. He was dimly aware of the sound of voices, but he had no interest in guests, newly arrived or otherwise. One of the trio paid the driver of the car, and it purred back, somewhat less viciously, from whence it came. "'Better separate when we get near the house and approach it carefully,' said the first speaker, in low, tense tones. "'We've got to get hold of him without anybody knowing it.' "'That's right. Wouldn't do to let them,' with significant accent, "'know what we've come for,' said the second man. The trio were quite out of earshot of Bob by now. "'Hope it'll turn out all right,' spoke the third anxiously. "'Why, in heaven's name, didn't we think of this in the first place?' "'Can't think of every contingency,' answered the first speaker viciously. "'Our plan now is to get hold of one of the servants. A nice fat tip, and then—come on, no time to waste.' As they made their way up the driveway to the house, Bob looked drearily around. His eyes noted and mechanically followed the trio of dark forms. He saw them stop near the house. Then he observed one approach a side window and peer in. A moment later, another approached another window and peered in. "'That's funny,' thought Bob, without any particular emotion. At the same time, he recalled that a band of burglars had been going about looting country houses. 
Perhaps these fellows were after a few hundred thousand dollars' worth of jewels. There might be half a million dollars' worth of jewellery sprinkled about among Mrs. Ralston's guests. But what did it matter? The presence of these intruders seemed too trifling a matter to think about now, and Bob sank into another reverie. How long he remained thus he did not know. The laughter and talk of a number of guests coming out the front way, end of a trot, probably, aroused him, and Bob got up. As he did so, he fancied he saw again the three men he had noticed, then forgotten, slip around toward the back of the house. Throughout the gardens the moonlight made clear spots on the ground, where the bright rays sifted through the foliage, or shone down between the trees, and they had to skip across one of these bright places to get around somewhere behind the big mansion. Undoubtedly the appearance from the house of the guests who wanted to cool off had startled the intruders, and inspired a desire to make themselves less conspicuous for the time being. Bob entertained a vague impression that the conduct of the trio was rather crude and amateurish, though that didn't worry him. He didn't care whether they were full-fledged yeggmen of the smoothest class, or only bungling artists, a discredit to their profession. He dismissed consideration of them as quickly again as he had done before. A yawn escaped his lips, and it rather surprised him that a broken-hearted man could yawn. He looked at his watch, holding it in the moonlight, and saw that it was late enough now so that he could retire if he wished, without violating to any great degree that even tenor of his way clause. Accordingly, Bob got up and walked toward the house. A side door was open, and he went in that way and up to his room. He was glad he didn't encounter anyone, that is, anyone he had to speak to. The monocle man drifted by him somewhere, but Bob didn't have to pay much attention to him. He could imagine the superior way in which the Britisher had informed Miss Gerald that he found him, Bob, an interesting young man. The monocle man and the bishop seemed to agree on that point. Undressing hastily, Bob flung himself into bed. He had gone through so much, he was tired and scarcely had he touched the sheets when the welcoming arms of Morpheus claimed him. His sleep was sound, very sound. In fact, it was so sound that something occurred and he didn't know it. It occurred again, several times, and still he did not know it. Another interval, a long one. Bob yet slept the sleep of the overwrought. His fagged brain was trying to readjust itself. He could have slept right through to the dawn, but this was not to be. Long before the glowing god made its appearance in the east, Bob was rudely yanked from the arms of Morpheus. End of chapter 8